0: Hey there, Next real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with movies we like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey. And now let's get back to the show.
1: That reminds me,
0: we should give the merch store a shout-out. Buying shirts from the slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs.
1: Welcome to the Next Real Speakeasy
0: on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hey, everybody. Each month on the Next Real Speakeasy, we invite an industry guest to join us. And instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about and spoil them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, costume designer and wardrobe stylist, Alana Mooreshead. Born in Reading, England, Alana moved to L.A. at the age of 14. She attended the L.A. Film School and, while there, dipped her toes into acting, planning bit parts in shows like Mad TV and Entourage. From there, she went on to work with a celebrity stylist before producing and directing her own feature film, Peach Plum Pear. Focusing on costumes, Alana worked as set costumer for the TV series The Man, then moved into costume design with IFC Midnight's 1 and 2. Her most recent film, Equals, starring Nicholas Holt and Kristen Stewart, began streaming recently and will begin its theatrical run in the U.S. on July 15th. Alana just finished work on Michael Angarano's directorial debut, Avenues, set to premiere later this year. And when she's not hosting game nights with her friends, Alana is busy designing Brett Haley's new film, The Hero, starring Kristen Ritter, Sam Elliott, and Nick
1: Offerman. Say hello to the folks, Alana.
2: Hi, everyone. Alana. Uh,
1: Oh, it's such a treat to have you on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So we're going to be talking
0: about a film that is uh, you picked as your favorite, uh, which is Never Let Me Go. So uh, can you tell us why you picked this film and why it's your favorite?
2: I picked this film because, well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Mark Romanek, the director. He's just been like a, a long time like inspiration for me, like as you know, someone who works in film too. And I just, I just love everything he does. And so when I saw this film, I was just completely. Completely moved and just so like emotionally affected. Like one of those films where you go and you watch it and then at the end you just like sit there for a couple of minutes and then just take it in. And then even like a few days after that, you know, it just like it takes a while to, to to really sink in. And there's always like new things you can, you know, think about. And I loved it.
0: Now, had you read the book before you saw the movie or is this a, kind of a, your introduction to this story?
2: I actually did it the other way around. I read the book after I saw the film. And uh, it was, and the book's incredible too.
1: This is a book uh, of the same name by Kazuo Ishiguro.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: link in the show notes. I, what was your uh, what was your impression of the book? Or how well the adaptation went?
2: It was. I mean, obviously, like there was a lot of things that were left out, but I didn't think it was anything that was like you know vital for like the story for the film. But you know. Uh, like some people prefer I think maybe if I would have read the book before the film I would have felt differently but I felt like I just went into more detail and like that was even good like I got to see like more things that like weren't in the film you know I could like explore even more things
0: my wife was one of those people who read the book first and and she was one of those people who was just like oh but they left this out and they left that (laughs) out and yeah, you know, it's interesting because.
1: I, <laughs> so don't ever go to movies with her.
0: <laughs> well, my impression, my impression from her was that some of the stuff they left out um, were some of the elements that might have uh, lent a little bit more to the world building, as far as kind of the mm-hmm. world of the way the school was set up, and as far as like uh, you know what some of the roles were with Madame and and uh, and uh, I'm blanking on their name is Miss Emily and um, the other one Miss uh, uh, Lucy. Uh, and just kind of how their roles were, and and kind of how they, uh, kind of the how they defined the place, how people were kind of more afraid of these these kids and all of that. Not having read the book, I actually felt like I didn't need any of that. I actually felt like you know I got everything I needed out of what uh, Mark did with his directing here and what Alex uh, uh, Garland did with the adaptation. I, I felt like there was enough of the world building that they did here to give me kind of the sci-fi elements. I got a sense that people were a little kind of put off by these kids. They didn't really know what to think of them and all that. And, mm. um, and I really liked that. I, I, so I, for me, again, not having read the book, I actually felt like this setup in the film wasn't really missing anything where I felt like I didn't get it.
1: I, I could not agree more. I, this was one of those that I didn't even know it was based on, on the book when I saw it. I, obviously, I'd seen the, the trailer. I only just watched it. I'd never seen the film. And it you know often with adaptations, you get that sort of, the, it has pacing problems. It is rushed. It feels like they're just trying to shoehorn in these plot elements just to connect them uh, later for no other real story purpose. And, and this film actually felt like it was perfectly paced. Like I got to know each of the characters at just the level I felt like I both needed to get to know them and wanted to get to know them, uh, and and felt totally redeemed. It is this high concept film that it, I, I couldn't get this image out of my head like I was going in for an x-ray and they were laying that thick that lead blanket down on top mm-hmm. of me because they were about, about to give me the x-ray and it was that was the weight I was feeling of the high concept of this thing like I I, I throughout the entire piece I was expecting it to go vastly more sci-fi than it did and at that restraint of keeping it this r- really interpersonal deeply personal drama about the, the relationship relationships of these three people, uh, and, and allowing the world to just exist was incredibly powerful for me.
2: I totally agree. Cause at the end of the day, it's just, it's a love story. You know, you don't need all those other elements around, like they're not, you know, it's mostly just focused on these characters. And I love that. That's what you were mostly focused on. It wasn't the sci-fi elements which could have been, you know, highly dramatized. But I love that he chose not to, like, focus on that and just, you know, you kind of forget about it until you see, like, little things like them, you know, swiping their wrist or, you know, and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then, but even when they're talking about, like, giving, like, donations, like, you believe it because it just yeah. feels, he's made, like, such a real world.
1: Well, and, and the whole concept of completion, uh, I that was, again, that lead weight. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was just heavy on me uh, throughout the entire thing, but it was done in such an approachable way uh, that it, I found it easy enough to have the conversation about this film with my children who are, you know, 10 and 14, and it was, you know, they, they found it as intriguing as I do. I mean, it's something that they are really interested in watching. I find it interesting to look at the, you know, to look at Alex uh, Garland. I mean, I am a huge fan of this dude, oh, yeah. and I had never, uh, I had never uh, even heard of this film. Prior to that, I feel like I've looked at his credits on IMDb. Mm -hmm. We've done movies of his on this show, and I've never noticed "Never Let Me Go." It's like it's been now. It screams to me. Uh, But but his sense of of pacing, his articulation of pacing around this film, uh, really, you can feel it through through you know even his more recent work through like Ex Machina. Um, It has a very similar sort of uh, beat to it.
0: And it's so interesting that he does so much sci-fi that's what I I love is this is a guy who really has a good handle on the world of science fiction. And here is this film that is a sci-fi film and he still shows so much restraint in the way Mm -hmm. that he depicted the world in the script and he could have made it so much bigger, but he put in just enough and it's like he and Mark kind of knew that, you know, we need to, this isn't a story about that science fiction. I think that it was uh, was it Mark that said something like it's not a science fiction story. I'm making a love story with fictional science content Mm -hmm. mixed in, Mm
2: -hmm. which I actually
0: thought was really good. And I I think that they looked at it that way, and ended up uh, creating just kind of a a beautiful story about these characters that really is kind of this reflection on mortality and you know how how we live our lives with the time we have, regardless of whether we're a clone.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. I love that. It's just it's like simple sci-fi almost. Like you take out all like the, you know, when you think of when I think of sci-fi, you know, you think of all these like high tech like qualities in a film. And this is just like, like simple. And I love that they just like take like bear, like strip everything away and just keep it like to what's like really necessary for the story. And like, what's really emotional,
0: you know, it's funny. I couldn't help, but think about as I was watching this, um, comparing it to the movie, the Island in my oh, head. Yeah. I don't know. Did you ever see that movie? Yeah.
2: I, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's like I, it, it once you kind of get the conceit of both of these, it's like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, these clones exist so that, you know, they can basically provide parts for for yeah. the others. And yeah, I thought I totally that was a totally that. different uh, take. And it's funny because when I watched The Island, my immediate thought was this would have been a really interesting low budget sci-fi movie. Yeah. I think I would have liked it so much more because I felt like the Michael Bayness of that movie just just kind of pushed it too over the top for me. Yeah. It's like, and then I f- discovered this film thanks to you, and it's like, oh, here is that film. It's film. right here, yeah. and I do like it so much yeah. more. Yeah,
2: because there are actually some parts of the island which, like, I actually really think is cool. You know, I'm actually into and I like. But yeah, I love that. I, I totally agree with like the similarities, and this is just more of like a real take on that story
1: the the whole concept that that alex is is dealing with here and 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 i think it's funny that he's playing with uh, obviously based on uh, ishiguro's uh, work but the fact that he keeps being drawn to these uh, stories about what makes us human mm-hmm. uh you know and, and i the, when you look at particularly the 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 uh, road that he took from this to uh uh, to Ex Machina, uh, this idea that, you know, it, 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 the body is is the vessel. How much do we attribute uh, the vessel's existence and operation to humanity? I, I found that he, this film really articulates that uh, well. And part of that is because we see so little of the science. It, mm-hmm. it allows us to be, I think, much more cerebral about it. Um, uh, what's your sense? Did you find yourself sort of uh, challenging those those sorts of concepts or conceits of humanity as you were watching this, or did you or did it keep you right at the kind of relationship level?
2: I think I was just so invested in the emotional aspect of the relationship. Like, I I love sci-fi film too, but I'd still no matter what genre movie it is, if I'm not emotional or if I'm not, I don't have some kind of like physical reaction either. Like I'm just not, it's just an emotional investment with a film. And, you know, and I keep going back, you know, to Alex Garland. And I love that he is like, you know, he's very much like focused on sci-fi also, but he's just like, it's so personal. It's like, it doesn't matter if it was about like zombies or aliens or anything. You you believe it.
1: That was the first film I saw of his was 28 days later. And it was, uh, it's it's one of my very very favorite films. But again, because of that that focus on the humanity and and you know uh, making what we run from that much more uh, robust uh, in capability was a real novelty. But really, we're still just running from ourselves. And I think that was a really powerful message of that film.
2: No, I totally agree. Yeah, at yeah. the end of the day, we're just you know still like we have emotions and we have feelings and we're human beings. And it doesn't matter like what where we are like in our society and what we're doing we're still just you know we feel things
1: Tell, I, I think we skipped over a very important part of this discussion which is telling people what really this film is about this is certainly one where
0: uh, i think that it uh warrants a reminder that we're going to be spoiling it pretty heavily because it's uh you know there's yeah <laughs> it, it's kind of critical to have seen this film before you really listen
1: to this one consider but, uh, yeah, yeah I, consider the spoiler horn sound Right. Spoiler right. Yeah. Spoiler alert.
0: The the film is about it's I, I loved this description that I, I saw on Wikipedia. It is a two thousand ten British dystopian alternative history romantic drama film. <laughs> which <laughs> okay. I think gets all the points. <laughs>
2: yeah. It, it is
0: about uh it is about these uh three characters. It's an alternative history. It takes place in the uh 70s 80s and 90s um, but it uh, we it kind of sets up in the 50s that they came up with this uh, this you know thing that they could do to kind of cure people uh, kind of make people better and increase life expectancy so people were living over 100 years of course in order to do that it meant that they were creating clones and as we learned through the course of the film these three characters uh, played by uh, as their adults Carrie Mulligan Kira Knightley and Andrew Garfield are three of these clones and trying to get a sense of their world and their place in it as they uh, kind of come to terms with uh, the fact that inevitably they're going to have to give up organs and uh, die for the people who need them.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know what I love about it too, that it's something, even though it's sci-fi, it's something that could actually happen. You know, it's not so far fetched. Like, or I think so anyway, like, you know, one day this could actually happen to us.
0: It, uh, Completely, totally, uh, a different uh, sense of uh, sense of well, I guess a complete sense of humor uh, change. But it also reminded me of the Monty Python sketch from uh, The Meaning of Life, when the guy who's the organ donor and they come to collect his organs, and they take him into the it. back room and just start hacking away at him. It's, That's it's, very much what it felt like at the end of this movie. Actually, <laughs> pretty funny. Yes, just quite a different tonality. But, uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, about Mark, Mark Romanek, director. What is it that you uh, that you are such a fan of, Mark?
2: I just love that he takes so many risks. I mean his I mean his music videos are like some of the most iconic music videos, like the Fiona Apple, "Criminal" video, um, the Nine Inch Nails "Closer," uh, the Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson "Scream." Like he they, he just pushes so many boundaries. Like even his music videos are like their films within themselves. Like, the, he still manages to, like, create such a world that even for a few minutes, you're completely lost in. And so, I've, I know, and I I grew up, like, watching music videos on TV and then, like, still now, like, I love watching music videos on YouTube, like, just seeing what people are still doing. And even now, like, he's still making videos because he still, you know, he's probably, like, loves doing it. And, and that's why I was so excited for him to do something narrative. And I just... I buy it, you know, I buy everything he does. I believe
0: it. He's done so few narrative films. I think it's this and one hour of a photo. Um, I I mean, he's credited to another film in 1985 called Static, uh, which does, does look like a kind of a feature comedy drama, but uh, not something I ever heard of. I think it's probably just one of those indie things that kind of pushed him into the music video world. And yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I had forgotten like, specifically which videos he directed but you mentioning those names I could instantly picture them and I yeah. think that says a lot about what he was doing with them like they're they're kind of just yeah. iconic visual feasts is what his his music yeah. videos always felt like
2: mm-hmm. and like everyone looks like you said that like you name them and you're like oh yeah that video like I know that video because they're just so iconic
1: it's still pretty rare to associate a director to a music video Oh,
2: absolutely yeah
1: and uh it's... and he is definitely one of them
2: yeah absolutely uh
1: what did i what's your sense of the of the the transition from one hour photo as a narrative film to this one do you, i mean they were looks like about 7 8 years apart um mm-hmm. and it's it has been a long time since i've seen one hour photo but yeah, uh, me too. but in terms of his directorial voice what do you uh what do you see in this film that that makes it a a particularly Mark Romanek film?
2: I think it's the tone, definitely. Like, he sets a certain tone where, I mean, even, like, his videos, they're not, like, super upbeat and, like, you know, happy and positive and has a, you know, a great ending. It's just, they're they're pretty dark. And these people in his film, they have real problems and real issues. And even in his videos, like, they're overcoming something. And And I think he's just really kept that, like, And I keep saying this, like, real, again, like, what it's just believable, you know? And it's just something that connects, that I connect to when I see that, when I see someone, you know, going through these things or these obstacles. Like, you just relate to these people because it's, like, real people with real problems.
0: Something I noticed with him is that he definitely is a a director who creates a definite visual style with his films. Mm -hmm. I don't remember... um, everything about one hour photo, but I do remember uh, just a lot of the, the shots. I mean, he he kind of works with, uh, as I recall, fairly still camera. Um, he also liked a lot of kind of color, uh, palettes. And that one certainly had a lot of kind of the clinical white Uh as Robin Williams would be kind of looking at the photos with just kind of the white lights around him and stuff. But also I think there were a lot of just other darker colors. Like I felt like there were just reds when he was like in the developing room. I can't quite remember exactly, but I felt like there was some more, some stronger colors throughout that film. And this film also, I think he really developed a a very carefully planned color palette that was very muted. Um, And I think, I, I can't remember if it was him or somebody who I heard say, that it was, you know, they wanted to find a way to translate the look that, or the feel that they got from Ishiguro's um, uh, writing. The way that his prose was so sparse and so mm. cold and clinical. The way that he wrote the novel, um, wanted to find a way to translate the feel of that into the look of this film. Which I, I mean, it's it instantly just as soon as the film started and you are you're getting those kind of uh full screen color dissolves of different like really muted yellows or or greens or blues and then the whole feel of the of the film film feels that way it just it's this kind of kind of cold sense of this world and uh i just i mean instantly i just felt like this is a director who has a clear sense of the of the vision he has in his head of the story he's telling here
2: yeah and i think that also goes back to like when he was doing music videos, because you have so little time to tell such a story that everything is so crucial like you know the whole frame is considered with him with the with the color palette with the production design with the cameras with the costumes with the everything and that's why I just like admire that as a filmmaker it's just so uh like carefully thought
1: out it's it is actually i i found it remarkable that he found a way you know there there's this this contextual contrast between hailsham the school and then going into the doctor's office right it was like yeah. you open this beautiful oak door and you go into this like sterile room that you know and, and your initial it's, it, it there's an initial shock to it because it's all it it feels very white but only in contrast to where you were in the room just outside it when once yeah. your eyes adjust I I find myself realizing he's managed to deaden uh, a sterile room, like it feels like the life and the, the energy has been sucked out of this doctor's office as a result. And again, that that feeds the narrative vision for me. Like I, I got a very clear picture, I think, of what what I needed to out of the experience that these kids were going through with their checkups, the the level of the, the, the extremes that they go to to keep these kids healthy.
0: What I think is so strange is that um, before he was offered this job, he was actually attached to the wolfman Mm-hmm. To, to direct that which just seems so strange because based on everything else that he had done it just doesn't seem like the sort of film that would fit but maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe he was going to bring an interesting vision to that story
1: what, who yeah. was who was it that was in the wolfman they um uh, it was Toro. Uh, benicio
0: del, benicio toro, del and, toro
2: yeah yeah, yeah and I, I read again that i didn't see the wolfman but i had heard about, because I was excited for him to, you know, another film for him to be doing, and then I, I heard that he had exited because he wanted to make, again, like, a more, like, darker, like, serious film, like, like both of these films are that he made, you know, they yeah. are, they're pretty dark. And I think The Wolfman wanted to go a little bit more, maybe not as dark.
0: Which is a shame, because it probably yeah. could have used that in retrospect. Oh, <laughs> it's I The Wolfman. I didn't yep. see it either. I mean, but I, but I really enjoy some of the classic Wolfman stories. And I, I, I think that they opted to go with the more kind of the, the light tone that they had a little bit from the old
2: days. Mm-hmm. Commercial.
0: But then but again, yeah. but, but I, I still much prefer something that, uh, I don't know, I feel like I would have preferred his version.
2: Yeah, well, I definitely would have seen it if
0: he did it. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mark Romanek, he uh, said that he got this email that somebody wrote to him and said, I saw your film and it made me cry and I haven't reacted to a film emotionally like that in years. And I called my father because I realized I hadn't spoken to him in three weeks and I told him how much I love him and how much I appreciate what a good father he's been. This is one of those films where, I mean, yeah. I finished it and I was like, wow, that was a really interesting film. And then over the next few days, I found it hadn't left my head. Yeah, It just it just kind of stuck there. It's one of those movies, you know what I mean?
2: Absolutely, yeah, because it's just about connecting as human beings like emotional connections and that's essentially what we all strive for and you know you see these characters like what they go through and it's something that you know you I feel like you can relate to with anybody in your life like family friends and especially when people leave your life you know you you realize like how important all that time is like you know Kathy could have spent all that time with with Tommy but that was 10 years missed you know and they just had the last little bit of time at the end and you realize just like what's important to you. And I think that's so cool. And I love that people reach out to filmmakers and say that. And I love that filmmakers are receiving those things. It's like validation for what they're doing.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's such an emotional process to get involved with a story on such a long term, you know, and, and, um, I think sometimes people forget that because they go and spend two hours in, in this story and then they walk out and leave and don't think about it again. And, it, it can be very frustrating. And I think it is important to, uh, to do that. And I, I think it's great that um, to know uh, for, for him to have realized that this film has touched people like that.
2: Yeah. I totally you know, write could. your
1: filmmaker campaign. Enough <laughs> writing congressman. <laughs> Nothing gets yeah. done anyway. Write that, your filmmaker. Getting, that's getting nowhere. Yeah. That's how you
2: felt. they need it? That's it's right. Rough. <laughs> uh,
1: that is. That is actually you. You both have made this point that I I, I hadn't quite connected to, which is this idea about the relationships as trio in this film. One of the things that's so fascinating about it is that even though they are all saddled with uh, with this impending doom. That they are all going to be harvested for you know is they 're just walking meat bags right now, substitute meat bags <laughs> uh, that that the relationships between them end up being more important than any of their immediate struggles, and particularly in in andrew garfield 's character tommy, um, you know I think we get this great sense of uh, of of him as a vessel of identity that that he knows he discovers through the process of being taken apart he he discovers even more powerfully more palpably who he is uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and I think the same thing can be held as Ca- uh, for Kathy, but she really is, it ends up being just sort of our, our narrative bellwether. You know, we follow her as, as kind of the main narrative character. Um, Keira Knightley is the character who sort of gives up, right? I mean, she just, she is harvested. She, she loses everything kind of by choice mm-hmm. uh, and lets go. But in, in Tommy, we get this character who, who discovers his identity. And I think that ends up being kind of a powerful message too, that, that sense of reclamation.
2: Mm-hmm. Like even when you know what your what your destiny is and what your future holds, you you still have a choice of how you're going to go on.
1: We do a uh, we do a, a segment on here Andy and I have have taken of late to talking about uh, the, the the lessons we can learn from the pairing of the very first shot of a film and the very last shot of a film. First shot, last shot. Andy, uh you want to recap what those are?
0: Yeah, the very first shot of this film is in the uh in we where... Behind Kathy, looking uh, at her silhouette, as we see the operating room in the other on the other side of the glass. And so it kind of sets up a sense of the space and Kathy, and we hear some of her voiceover as she's kind of introducing this. And then the last shot, we have a similar shot of her as she's looking at a field from the other way around. We're looking at her face as she's kind of staring at this at this field, and we see. And then the last shot is actually this fence, this barbed wire fence. We see several pieces of plastic stuck on on the on the fence, blowing in the wind. And then, of course, we dissolve off to that pale yellow. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the first, that's the way we begin and end this film,
1: um, set up by Mark. I gotta admit, I was, I was stymied by the last shot. I, and, and I'm thinking about it now. Andy's totally poisoned me because now I think about the first shot and last shot and I find myself really living in a constant state of shame if I think, I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> and, and so in this one, like the first shot I get, there's this sense of distance. We get this, this sort of gift of distance where anytime I think you're looking behind a character uh, over their shoulder, you're sort of getting that next layer of removal from whatever the subject is. And I think that's, that ends up being kind of an interesting lesson for for this film, particularly her role as she's taking us through it, that she is is as of now a, a level removed from it and and that is kind of the place where we as the audience are as we are introduced to it and move closer and closer to it. I didn't get the last shot
2: I think from both shots like we're kind of seeing from her perspective like what is actually in front of her like in that moment, like actually like physically in front of her and like what you know emotionally and metaphorically you know, when, when she's looking at Tommy, like that's, that is what we're about to go into, about to see her life with this person and her struggle with it. And then at the end, she's looking out into this field. It's almost like, like a blank canvas. Like she knows in a month, she's about to, you know, start donating. So she has, you know, not a lot of time left. And then it's just, you know, all the people she loves have gone. And it's like, almost like, does she start over? Does she go somewhere else? Like that's her next chapter that she's about to jump into
1: what's the what was the deal with the plastic on the barbed wire do we know i mean did did i i feel like i may have missed a plot point i don't think it was a plot point um other
0: than my sense of it was we do hear that line when they're they're trying to find um they think that they found um the match for ruth and they go to find her and then they have that whole conversation about you know none of these people are going to be our match we are the you know the 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 dead prostitutes in the alley, or whatever it is they're saying that the 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 people in these mag these these porn magazines that we're looking at, all that sort of stuff. That's kind of where they come from. And she says, you know, we come from the trash. And so the fact that it's a couple pieces of kind of discarded plastic that kind of got stuck on that fence, I I, mm. I my sense was it was almost like she was kind of seeing like that's kind of where. Uh, the world had put them, you know, just these little pieces of trash kind of floating in the breeze. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I don't know. I just felt like there was so much more to it than that. Like there's this beautiful field and there's all this other stuff going on. And so I don't know, I guess I found, I felt Kathy might be kind of reflecting on her, just her place in the world. You know, she's about to go offer up these organs and, and kind of that's the end of her life. But like she says, Everybody completes. Everybody is going to have to die. You know, these pieces of plastic trash that are stuck on the fence really could apply to anybody.
1: Well, and by, by you know, by extrapolation, anybody—not just the donors—everybody eventually dies. And, and yeah, I think that ends up it's being a matter where, of when. Yeah, yeah. What is the what is the gift you're going to take away from this life? Yeah. And
0: that's and that's a point of the film that I really enjoy is this idea that. The, the, everything in it is really compressed to the focus of these three clones that we're watching. But it really is like anybody else in life. You know, everybody's going to die. Everybody has this kind of fear of death and and, and how they approach it can be so uh, different. And I, I like that these three people kind of have a different approach to uh, the end of their own lives all as it's compressed for us in this short space of their you know 20-some years of life that they actually have. It's interesting. I, yeah. I find it just such an interesting uh, way to tell the story about these uh, these characters in this universe that just, I don't know, it just gives us a really interesting glimpse into humanity. And I, I found it very touching.
1: Was Carrie Mulligan, uh, Could is there a better person to have cast oh, for no Kathy? No way. No way. I've, if there was, I would love to meet her.
2: <laughs> I mean, she was, she was mesmerizing. It was so... It was, there was so much subtext with her performance, which I loved. You know, she didn't, there's so much she didn't say, but there's so much that we felt, which I loved.
0: She was, um, she had to be, in order to play the role of Kathy, had to be really good at being passive and observing stuff and just kind of the act of subtlety. And okay. she nailed it to a T. Oh, yeah. And she was just so good at just kind of at, at observing. And she had these moments, like at the end, when Tommy was about to go under um just the way that she looked at him and there's this ever so slight like a little tiny nod that she gives him it's almost almost not even noticeable um but it's just it's just the tiniest thing and i'm just like oh that was just so yeah, touching like details. broke my heart right there yeah
2: she's like the ultimate caretaker like in life
0: yeah, yeah she worked well as a carer right
2: yeah mhm
1: you know what this movie though it makes me appreciate her other performances even more. You know, even in something you know, we, I loved her in Drive. I, we've talked about Drive on the show. She was just terrific. She was uh, you know Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby. I thought she was great in that. Uh, Inside Lou and Davis, which is uh, I I think I liked it more than maybe I liked it more than you, Andy. Yep. Uh, oh, okay, okay. You probably didn't have to answer that quickly. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, but uh, but even all the way back to you know uh, Wall Street. Money never sleeps. I, I actually like her more in that movie today than I did yesterday before I had seen this film.
2: Oh, I didn't see that. I'm, I'm still a fan of an education. I think that's my fake. Uh, that I have oh, not okay. seen, uh, <gasps> actually, which I know. Ooh, you I know. would love it. I know. I would like it. Um,
0: that was an amazing film. And actually, that is the film that got her this job. And I think it's so funny that she read this book when it came out, and she was in love with it. And she's like, oh, if they ever make it, I have to play Kathy. I have to play uh-huh. Kathy. And, uh, but she didn't even know they were making the movie, and these oh, guys okay. were moving forward making it. And um, they were struggling to find their Kathy. And Mark's is like, none of these women work. And then uh, Peter Rice, who's the head of Searchlight, he was actually at Sundance and he was watching *An Education*. And in the middle of the movie, he started texting Mark. He's he's just like, hire the genius Mulligan, oh, just telling like, her midway through. And so yeah. that's how they found Carrie. And then of course she's just like, of course
2: I'll play Kathy. And Amazing. It's like that that's is
1: so just cool. like his <laughs>
2: It's a great that's a movie. Perfect. You got to see it. I know. I know. Well, see,
1: now I'm looking down the list. I'm like, oh, great. That's like the movie I haven't yeah. seen. And that's how she got this stupid job. <laughs> how did I end up the dummy in this conversation? Uh, Andrew Garfield as Tommy. Pre-Spider-Man. Yeah. Garfield.
2: So fragile. So so much emotions I loved it
1: yeah I ex- exuberant uh he is not in this film I actually found him really uh, delightful I thought he was he was a, a, the embodiment of eggshells lead in the, the beginning oh. of the film right and just the the just the instant rage that he could he could trigger even in as a character the young character uh, uh played Tommy I think he uh, um, uh, Garfield embodies that so well later like as he once we are introduced to Tommy as played by Garfield the the older Tommy I found myself like on edge waiting for him how are they going to exercise his rage uh, yeah. and I think it was just perfect
2: yeah I totally agree yeah.
0: That's, that scream is one of those that just kind of like rips through the screen yeah. uh, that you're watching it on and right into your soul it was...
2: you can, you can t- totally just like feel it like brewing when they're getting told that there is this is it you know and you can just see it like just boiling underneath it's, it's going to
0: happen. And it comes after such a painful conversation when the, you know, uh, Miss Emily kind of just bluntly admits, uh, yeah, we, we were only doing the art to figure out if you even had souls.
2: Oh uh, yeah. It's just like, gosh, oh, I mean, I this know, is
0: what so uh, It just, it really is just, it's like shocking and, and uh, just so brutal the way that they dealt with this. And then they talk about how they've given up on these sorts of uh, schools and now it's just battery farms. And I'm like, it sounds awfully like the Matrix. Like now they're just harvesting these, these people, like growing organs. them in a farm yeah. and just, oh, just like, this is not the future that I w- would want.
1: <laughs> it's nope. pretty horrifying. Isn't it funny that, and I think a sign of just his, Garfield's talent. I I am very fond of him as an actor. And I may be, you know, now that we've met the new Spider-Man, I I think I may be the last holdout that actually really appreciates what he brought to the character of Spider-Man. But isn't it fascinating that this year, 2010, uh, he came out with both Never Let Me Go and The Social Network, uh, ending up playing two very, very different characters.
2: So different. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I remember um, Terry Gilliam. um, I I, I don't remember which festival is that, but he was talking about uh, Andrew Garfield, who had appeared in the imagination or the imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And uh, he's just like, Oh, yeah, Andrew Garfield, he's totally going to be the next big, um, the next big star. And I don't I don't think I totally saw it in the imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Um, but I mean Gilliam did. And then of course, then you see these films that immediately follow it. It's like, oh, of course, there it is. It's it's right there. It's like this is a guy who really just has that connection to that part inside of him that he's able to uh expose so well.
2: Yeah, and just has a lot of range. I mean, I love that he he really has such a resume since so many different roles and you know, like as an actor like enjoys like having that range which i think is really cool
1: and kira knightley
2: oh i love kira knightley do
1: you love kira knightley i
2: love her so much yeah (laughs) like i love her the duchess is one of my absolute favorite films
0: i think and they filmed some of this at the same one of the same places they filmed some of that movie too i can't remember which one but i know i read that somewhere which
2: is funny it's so good yeah i mean i love a period piece like whenever but she is yeah i think she's great i love her i'm a big fan
1: so you must Here be it all about the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean as a period I piece. I do love Pirates Nightly. of the Caribbean. There I mean, you yeah. go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the beach at Holcomb is also oh. featured in this film. Night previously shot, or Nightly previously shot scenes at nearby Holcomb Hall for her 2008 film, The Duchess. That's what it was.
2: Oh, cool.
1: Uh, talk about a woman with range. Mm-hmm. Um from uh, these period pieces which she she sort of has a corner of the market on on some of these great period pieces right now to um yeah a film we didn't like all that much Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit uh, Everest was uh, was tough uh
0: but I liked Everest. I know. I, did. I think I'm the one hold out on that one.
1: But it was you-
2: entertaining. It was I was it, it was t- it had a lot of tension. I mean it, it was entertaining, you know. Yeah. I thought uh. <laughs> eh, what are you gonna do? Uh,
1: but but uh, you know, we just watched again The Imitation Game uh, recently, oh, I love it. which was stunning. It was terrific, absolutely
2: brilliant. Yes,
1: though. absolutely. It uh, she is just delightful. She has a a, a very uh, just the uniqueness of her performance. Her charisma on screen is is, is inimitable,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and I think it it shows in this film. I'm never quite sure. And I think intentionally so. I think this was played intentionally so. I'm not sure how, what kind of relationship I'm supposed to build with her. She she moves through her own arc as, um, as this first this sort of gentle member of the trio, and then into sort of a spiteful or more sort of sadistic. Kind of uh, uh, jealousy that comes out uh, between her and Kathy uh, into this sort of fatigued, this sort of uh, dried out um, kind of shell of a woman as they've harvested her rather uh, grimly, uh, and I think I think uh, Knightley handled it really, really well.
0: Well, and gentle member member of the trio, but uh, you know. I found her character so interesting because she was the one who was kind of uh, ruthless—not to uh,
2: uh, <laughs> pull her name into it
0: too much—but I, you know, that that whole way that she started her relationship with Tommy, almost specifically to to That's get right. get at Kathy, yeah, to kind of spite Kathy, um, it was just painful. It was like it it was just rough the way that she kind of treated Kathy, and it's almost like she would befriend Kathy and then she'd stick something in, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, pull him in and then stick him with a pin and and, you know, but then give him a hug to make him feel better about mm-hmm. it. And it's just it was like this weird relationship. And I, I, I think what's so interesting, and this is something my wife talked about with the book, is that um, you know just the way that Ruth really struggled trying to find the way to operate um, in this world. Like she she didn't quite Get it like, and that's why, like the awkward things that she would pull in from watching the Friends, how they were mimicking the TV yeah. show and all that sort of stuff. And she said in the book, it was almost even more awkward the way that she would do weird things. And uh, but I, I felt a lot of that stuff um, in her character kind of came from her just struggling, trying to figure out, you know, what she was going to get out of this life. And and I enjoyed her character arc as she kind of was that one who was uh, much more rough and, uh, kind of tried to figure things out. And over time, you know, realized, you know, uh, you know, I'm been hurting these people and now I'm going to kind of let it go. That was really touching. I found that decision of hers when she kind of stepped away was, uh, was pretty powerful for me.
2: Yeah. I think when you know you're about to die, especially, you know, a lot of people, you know, they on their deathbeds, they forgive people or they make amends. Like when it comes to that point, you just kind of let everything go. And, you kind of forget that these kids at, at Helsham, they don't they only know of this school. They don't know anything outside of that school. And but, you know, the the natural, you know, feeling of affection towards like the opposite sex. Like as a young girl, like you want a boy's attention or a girl, like, you know, is interested in a in a and another or a girl's interest in another boy like you just you have that and, you know the, and there's still those human elements that they had I mean that's why they had the gallery the art shows is to see like are they really you know are they capable of like do they have souls are they capable of feelings and then just seeing that that's like a natural progression as human beings you know that's all they really had and then even just like copying like the tv and those aspects like it's just it's like petty but it's like, you know, what teenage girls do, you know, especially when there's five people and two are couples, there's always going to be one left out. Who wants to be the one that's left out?
0: Exactly. Speaking about uh, these three, um, definitely makes me want to talk about the younger versions of them Isabel, I, I don't know, is a Makely Small, Ella Purnell, and Charlie Rowe? And uh, just how wonderfully cast these three kids are, especially Isabel as the young Kathy. I'm like, oh, yeah. it was seriously like
2: really a young uh,
0: Carrie Mulligan lookalike. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of blew me away.
2: So talented too, yeah.
0: I thought what was um, really interesting hearing these guys talk about the way that they chose to make this film, they would rehearse the the three kids because they really wanted these, these uh, different sides, uh, different periods in their life to really feel like it was coming from the same person. They would rehearse the three kids um, at, with the adults watching, and then they would have the adults do the same scene that the kids would do, so the kids could see how the adults would do it, <laughs> and and that kind of helped the kid. It helped inform the kids as ways that they could do it, and the kid the the adults would kind of talk to them about choices they were making and all that to really help both of them get into the same page with the characters. And they even sometimes would have like one of the kids when they were filming a kid acting the scene with the adult off camera playing the, the other kid so that they could really kind of just live in the same shells. I thought that was such a fascinating uh, way to put this story together.
2: That's so cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's, that's awesome.
1: That is very cool. The kids did just an admirable job mm-hmm. uh, in this film, as did, I got to say, how fun it was to see Dummel Gleason. Uh, in here oh. hey you know again, you talk about on screen charisma I really have have just fallen for this guy he's he's fantastic to watch and and a, brings kind of a complexity of personality that I think is is uh, again unique but i think you Andy, you think this is uh where alex uh discovered uh, and started pulling for him for Ex machina.
0: It made me think that, yeah. you know, it just seemed to, uh, you know, he's such a prevalent part of that film, obviously. And, uh, you know, Alex Garland was obviously around for this one. It seemed like, hey, yeah, this guy might be good for my movie. I don't know. But, you know, he's he has done a number of uh, little sci fi things recently because wasn't he in one of those uh, episodes of um, Black, Mirror.
2: Black Mirror, Black
1: Mirror? yes yeah. That, yeah, he was good. in the best episode. wasn't he He was the memory one, right? Oh,
2: so good. Oh. Yeah. That, that was an amazing was episode. Fantastic. That was an incredible hour of television. That was just—I I thought I was like blown away by that episode. It's really good.
1: Plus, uh, I, he was in the little um, indie uh, Force Awakens.
2: Uh, yeah, <laughs> that old thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that old thing. <laughs> yeah, he's great.
0: It's—it is great to see him on screen, and uh, I mean, and you know, the rest of the people I think were great in the in the roles they had. Sally Hawkins, Charlotte Rampling, um, but really. I mean, this is largely a film uh, helmed by Carrie, Andrew, and Kira, and I think those three really do a stellar job of carrying the carrying the weight of the film on their shoulders.
1: Uh, making of I, this, it I, I don't know producers uh, Andrew McDonald and Alan Reich. Any uh, contention around getting this film made that you uncovered, Andy?
0: Nothing about the film getting made. I know that these uh, these guys. I think Alex actually had worked with them before, and he uh, he and Cosmo are friends. And he actually got the uh, uh, the galley copy of the novel. I actually I think he started reading it before Cosmo had even finished it, and he already knew right just from that little bit of the book that he wanted to make this into into a he wanted to adapt this into a screenplay. And asked Coswell for his blessing, and then went to these producers who um, who he had worked with before, and was like, I, "I really want to make this and it sounded like you know just from his passion for the story, they were like, "Sure, let's do it," and kind of jumped on board, which it it's just great. It's nice to hear that sometimes it can be that easy
1: <laughs> yeah, that it it actually works <clears throat> right
0: uh, yes and i I think that they ended up. Uh, this is one of those situations where I think that they found all the right people, um, you know, bringing Mark on to direct it and these actors to do it. I, I think that they did find the right team. Um, Adam Kimmel was the cinematographer. And like I said, you know, just the the stillness of the camera and the way that it moved slowly. Uh, there was a little bit of handheld when Tommy was screaming and stuff like that. But it didn't seem like there was anything really big. It just felt very kind of uh, steadily paced, which seemed to fit, again, kind of the the stillness and the muted colors all kind of going back to the writing that Ishiguro did.
1: He has this knack for, um, for capturing uh, depth of scene, right? I mean, I, I feel like there were a number of just really dramatically or beautifully um, set long roads uh, the, when they uncover the boat. Uh, on the beach like that that lone boat in the distance uh, with the grass over it I think it was just a really beautiful beautiful. yeah Mm -hmm. beautifully architected shot I think it it really lends to again the distance between them and and their destination I think that was just beautiful it's it's my kind of shooting I really kind of resonate with that visually it was easy to watch
0: yeah, and he hasn't he hasn't done a
1: feature since this. I know. He's done some like video
0: shorts and and uh I mean he was second unit on Foxcatcher. Oh. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of weird. I, I would think that he would be jumping out jumping in there and getting some more stuff going, but yeah. uh
2: Yeah. Hmm. I've so, I seen he I saw he had some things in maybe in development and I know he does a lot of commercials. Um oh.
0: so. Yeah, it could be. Probably pays better.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah.
1: a a number of folks on the production design team uh, uh it, that I, I think it's it's a fascinating set again because you talk about the fact that this has science fiction elements though it's not a science fiction film it it might as well have been downton abbey uh, <laughs> it, you know what i mean like it really felt of of a piece of its own period and its own universe it didn't nothing felt really out of place even the fancy armbands and the metal uh plates uh it, you know the the overall production design I felt right at home.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Yeah, and that's, you know, they didn't focus on the sci-fi because I feel like if there were, you know, those elements, like, you know, if it was built up, I think it would be distracting. I think it would take away from this love story. I think as an audience, we wouldn't, you know, we we would be too focused on those, you know?
0: Talking about um, the production design and just the look of the film and coming into your neck of the woods a little bit, um, I, I think it's definitely worth also talking about the costume design here. And just like how it fits the overall palette of the Mm. uh, that kind of muted look of the film. But also just kind of the, um, I don't want to say like patchwork, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but the way that these these clones dressed in context of uh, secondhand and just kind of almost like Mm the secondhand nature that they, like the toys, like I couldn't get over... You know, the fact that, you know, oh, it's it's the day to pick our toys and it's all these like these broken, broken leftovers. It's a kazoo. <laughs> it's <pieces>. like <laughs> yeah, just like the
2: leftovers that no one wants, you know. It
0: was amazing. And it, but and looking at their costumes, and it didn't strike me right away until I think after, I think it was later in the film, but it kind of struck me all of a sudden. It's like, oh, it is kind of patchy looking.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, what did
0: you think of that and how it tied into kind of the whole muted feel and and everything?
2: I think it kind of, it's the same you know like we said about those those toys it's like kind of cobbled together and hand-me-downs or someone's grown out of it or they went to like a you know second-hand shop and I love that there wasn't any blacks I noticed which was really cool there was no black I think in I definitely noticed that in the costume design but I don't even think in in the film there wasn't really any black used
1: why did that jump out at you
2: I just because it was everything felt really like soft and cozy and warm. And I think when you're have when they're having like the, the topic is so sterile and so cold that, you know, spoken in this world that just feels so like soft and cozy. And there was really like plush like textures and wools and like warm colors and everything was very faded and worn and it just felt like a like a cozy sweater. You just like put on and have like a cup of tea with it. And and I and I think that just really fit into this cold conversation, where it's they were just so blunt about what their job was, like why they were there. I just thought it was, I thought it was just so well done. It just, it really just kind of again made you kind of forget, like what these kids were in for. Yeah, it's
0: just such a strange world and expectations for them, and it was, it was, it had such a secondhand feel to it. And I, I also loved how the people of the world reacted to them <laughs> and like even the ones who were kind of like helping them out and stuff, like who would drop, drop things off and whatnot. Sure. I don't know. They just, the way that they would react to these, these young kids and everything and, and just kind of give them that look like, oh, there's something about you. I don't want to yeah. get close to you. And yeah, it's or like, even they... that
1: I know what's going on and I'm just shamed that I can't tell you. That's definitely the feeling I got when the guy brought the good, the toys. Oh,
2: yeah, absolutely. Like these poor kids yeah. are so excited for this crap.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, bumper crop. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a real bumper crop
0: year. Uh, so sad.
2: Kids, um, I forget the character's name—not Charlotte Rampling, but the other, the woman that they went to see it. And yes, she. What was it she said when she touched? When she touched Kathy's face, she said, "I feel so bad for you, creatures." Yes, so she used the word "creatures" and that really hit me. I was like, "Wow, they're not even considered humans or." They're still looked at as like almost like robots, or you know, not of this world. Yeah,
1: I think that's a that's another piece. I mean, they just built such a fantastic language again to separate them from humanity. You know, I think that's just they had to invent a whole new sort of utility of language, whole new vernacular to talk about them, so that we don't get too close to them.
2: Yeah,
0: and it's it's interesting that these uh, this group of beings, these clones, had. Kind of created their own, uh, almost like their own fantasies within within their world, like these deferrals that they they thought that they could get to prolong things. Uh, it's just interesting to see how even in that, even in within their own closed society of the clones. They had started it's almost like their, their own storytelling of the myths and the things that they could you know get to kind of uh, you know get yeah. more out of their own lives it was well, it was really interesting, and then it was really hurtful almost how these other people viewed all of that
2: yeah, well it's almost like they needed that myth of the deferral to have some kind of goal to get to something to reach to look forward to, otherwise you know if it, they didn't know about it for it never it, you know the myth had never been said they would just they would have no reason for existence at least that gives them some kind of hope or something to look forward to. that's why it's just such a it's so devastating when they find out that it's not it's not real
0: um How was uh, Rachel Portman's music for you
2: I, I thought it was very emotional and it came in like a, a, the perfect times when when we're supposed to be feeling something but it wasn't distracting. it just gave you that little extra like push you know to to, to really feel something.
0: I think that she's got such a a brilliant uh, connection to emotion in her music Uh, anyway. I I just really love the stuff that she does with her uh, scores that she's done. I mean, there are just some fantastic bits out there. Cider House Rules, Chocolat, Chocolat, uh, even The Duchess, uh, you know, she did that one. Uh, okay. she's just done some just beautiful beautiful music and here the music is just heartbreaking yes. uh, it's so passionate but I, I i read something she said where she she didn't have the violins um, use the vibrato because she didn't want it to sound too sentimental and mm. i thought that was interesting it's like she wrote this lush music but then kind of found a way to almost keep it a little more on the clinical side mm-hmm. so so the emotion is there but she also pulls back on the sentimentality which was so interesting because it uh, it really kind of gives you both worlds and uh it still breaks your heart
1: she has an incredibly eclectic massive and incredibly eclectic list of credits i i had no idea that she had done all of these films and i it was before i was paying attention so much to anything any composer that didn't start with a j uh, but but Pyromaniacs Love Story, Benny and June, one of my favorites. To the Joy Luck Club, um, mm-hmm. uh, Road to Wellville. Um, right after Pyromaniacs Love sto- Love Story go- comes Palookaville and To Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, well, and then Emma, which is yeah. what she won
0: her Oscar for.
1: That's right, and and uh, I, I mean just an amazing body of work. Uh, this woman, amazing.
0: And I I don't think we can talk about uh, the music that. Uh, Rachel Portman does uh, in this film, without also bringing up the really great song "Never Let Me Go" by mm. Judy Bridgewater, mm-hmm. uh, which is completely fictional. And I swear, I heard that song, and I'm like, "Oh, I feel like I remember this song. I feel like I've heard <laughs> it before." <laughs> and they really uh, pulled the wool over my eyes, uh, you know, finding out that they wrote it specifically for this film and that Jane Monheit is actually singing it. But um, oh, such what a, a beautiful one. song! Yeah. I think the only song I've heard of hers, um she did like the the end credits song in Sky Captain in the world of tomorrow, yes she did yeah oh right. she uh, she it was the cover of uh, somewhere over the rainbow, I
1: yep. yeah yes, she's just fantastic, so
0: something that I really loved about this song, which is it's it's a beautiful song, but i don't know i I found the the moment for me one of the moments for me that really just touched me was when. Uh, Kathy is sitting in her room and she's listening to that song and she's kind of clutching that pillow. Mm -hmm. And it was just this moment where it's like, she's kind of connecting to another being and, and feeling that emotion that, you know, these, these kids aren't trained for Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and now I'm forgetting if Miss Emily pops up behind her or if that yeah. was just my wife telling her that Miss Emily popped up behind her in the book. Because I, no, <laughs> it like, I know that, there was a Miss Emily moment.
2: It, when when she's clutching the pillow, it's actually uh, Ruth who's like she turns around and she's standing in the doorway. And and I think doesn't that happen again later on in the movie? There's a moment like that. Am I thinking of something else? Where where it was. Yeah.
0: I feel like there's one with Miss Emily and then I feel like there's also one with Kathy. I feel like it happens a couple times mm-hmm. in the film. And it's just, it's, I don't know. There's something about, I don't know. I guess the song has such kind of an emotional core. I mean, never let me go. It just feels yeah. so definitive. Never, uh, you know, with these people who are going to be dying, leading very short lives. And this idea of connecting to another person in that time to t- is such, a, such an emotional level. And these people are like never trained for any of that. It's such an interesting uh, song choice. And uh, uh, I, I'm curious how it actually worked in the book because you don't ever get to hear a song, really. Mm-hmm.
1: But, uh, is there is there is a, a, a song talked about in the book? There's no attachment to music in the book. Uh-uh. It's not like a high-fidelity kind of a thing.
2: No, yeah.
0: Interesting, interesting. Uh,
1: how'd this do around uh, award season? Uh, it, it did
0: get uh, a few... Uh, wins for awards and uh, a lot of nominations. It had seven wins, 26 nominations. Nothing nothing hugely big. I mean, you know, like Academy of Sci-Fi, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Andrew Gar- Garfield won Best uh, best uh, Supporting Actor there for the Saturn. A lot of different things, uh, but nothing huge. Carrie Mulligan won Best Independent Film Award um, for Best Actress. And uh, it's one of those films where I feel like it just didn't connect. It, mm-hmm. for, for some reason, it didn't connect the way that I feel like it should have. Like I, I don't know if it was marketing or what. I found a very interesting, kind of reading up on this. Um, you know, five weeks into its release, L.A. Times called it uh, called the box office take an undeniable disappointment commercially, and the film ex- experts and the executives at Fox Searchlight they came up with five reasons it failed, and I imagine now after reading this, that, you know, anytime a film isn't making its money, the executives all have to sit around coming up with the reasons Makes that it sense. failed yeah. so they could tell the investors why it didn't make their money back. They said that the timing, uh, the airing was too early in the year when lighter summer fare is popular. Oh, and yes, this said, is definitely
1: an autumn.
0: Right, Yeah. yeah. Right, this is an awards season sort yeah. of movie. Yeah. Uh, they said it came from a novel that is particularly difficult to adapt. Well, I obviously I disagree like-
1: with that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think they did a great job. Um, they got mixed reviews from critics, even though what I read is that they were still generally positive. But I guess some critics were a little harsh on it. They said it had a depressing tone, and they said it lacked an appeal to male <laughs> That's viewers.
2: it, because it's That's not a Hollywood movie. It's not a,
1: everybody it's like, dies. Yeah. That's the message it Doesn't have
2: you know flying cars and superheroes so it's you know but I feel like it was a fairly quiet film like not many people know about this and I think a lot of it is based on referrals like have you seen this film you have to go and watch it and then people who I have told you know they've said great things about it They just people just don't know about this film
1: I feel like I steamrolled over that last point it's lack of appeal to male viewers uh, I, well, a, I obviously disagree, but, yeah. uh, I, I haven't talked to anyone else besides you two about this film uh, and my children, <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, why? Because it's a, it's a drama that is kind of quiet and ends yeah. in a slightly depressing way. It, this is, I think, a you know, it's one of those films where it's like a really fascinating story. I mean, it's like, you could say, oh, well, the lobster doesn't appeal to male viewers or, I mean, it's, I don't know. I feel like they were coming up with reasons that just to pitch to people like, oh, this is why we think it didn't work. But It's you a know, scapegoat. It's, like, it's a scapegoat. It, it's a yeah, bullet. Exactly, it's yes. Yeah. It's, terrible. It's, terrible.
2: Mm-hmm. it's terrible. I almost picked the lobster. That was my second choice. Oh, oh I <laughs> loved
0: a, that movie. Yeah, <laughs> so, good. So, good. <laughs> so this movie, um, it did cost $15 million to make, which in today's dollars is about $16 million. It wasn't too long ago. Um, and then it ended up making domestically here in the States only about $2.5 uh, internationally about nine, uh, just under nine and a half million. So all told, yes, it did end up losing money at the box office, unfortunately. Um, it, it ended up losing about 33000 per adjusted uh, finished minute. So, Ouch.
2: Jeez.
0: Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's just like, didn't connect that with this sucks. audience. But it's really disappointing <laughs> because this is a film. <laughs> it is. I It does. It really yeah, sucks. It really so I feel like this is one of those movies that people should see. There's a lot here.
1: What does that put us on the on the spreadsheet, Andy?
0: Oh well, of the movies that we found information for, it's yeah.
1: it's the bottom, it's number five. It's it's the last. Yeah, uh, that's too bad. It well, is. now well, yeah, I, think we should, uh, I think we should. I think we should take it to the Coliseum. Let's do it. Let's let's rank it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody, and you uh, just fill in. I just uh, never let me go in the search box there. It's it could not be easier. You fill it in. You add this to your account to your list, and uh, and and then we'll see. We'll see how it does. Uh, Filmo a Filmo. Never Let Me Go versus...
0: First up, we have Never Let Me Go versus Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?
1: This is a tricky one. So you're on an island. You're on a desert island. Okay. You have a television Mm -hmm. and two movies. Mm -hmm. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Never Let Me Go. What are you going to watch? Never Let Me Go. It is her favorite, Pete. It is. (laughs) That is a fairly predictable answer. Andy, what do you you think?
0: You know... uh... I, I feel like I get more emotional um, you know, connection out of Never Let Me Go. I mean, I really enjoy oh Brother Where Art Thou. Um, I also feel like, I don't know, sometimes with that one, I feel like, you know, I've seen it and I kind of, you know, I, I'm not, I love it, but I'm not that keen on kind of uh, hitting it up anytime <laughs> soon. So I don't know. I feel like I'm feeling like I'm leaning toward Never Let Me Go on this one.
1: I, I? I'm, yeah. uh, I'm telling you, I actually am on the Never Let Me Go train. Uh, this is, I, I, feel like I've, I wouldn't have been when I finished the movie yesterday. And again, proximity may have, may, may be working into this, but I have been thinking about this film all day. I cannot <laughs> get it, it out of my head. And so I feel like that, that deserves a nod here.
0: Absolutely. Well, next up we have never let me go or the curious case of Benjamin Button.
1: Oh, I, uh, I'm never let me go on this one too.
0: Yeah, I enjoy ne- uh, Benjamin Button, but um, I don't know. I, I I I feel like this one I ended up really connecting to a little bit more emotionally, maybe. So yeah. I'm gonna say Never Let Me Go.
2: I'm gonna say Never Let Me Go, even though that was tough because I do love Benjamin Button. It was good.
1: It, it definitely only gets harder from here. On that that was one too,
2: great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Never
1: Let Me Go or The French Connection.
2: I haven't seen the French connection. So, uh, okay. there we go. All right.
1: All right. There's a, we've got an abstention. Andy, what do you think? I for me this is uh French connection actually. It is? It is. I don't even know how to who are you? I don't know how to read you anymore. <laughs> uh I uh, I thought I was going to be the French connection uh but I'm I uh, since you did it it's I'm, I'm going to let you have it.
0: Okay. So and oh, it's the French Connection. Yeah. It is French Connection. Okay. Sorry, Alana. Oh,
1: it good. doesn't mean
0: we didn't like it. French Connection's <laughs> really good. Okay, That's now really, I have feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. What's Never next? Let Me Go or Moneyball. That's a tough one, Pete. Oh, it's um, I'm That's Moneyball all the way. I adore that movie. Have you um, seen that one, Alana?
2: I have. I I'm st- I'm sticking with mine.
0: <laughs> all right, Andy's a tiebreaker? Oh, boy. I uh, I'm sorry, Alana. I'm going to go with Moneyball. So, uh, uh, never let me go or Shaun of the Dead. Oh, I'm sorry. I have to go, Shaun of the
1: Dead.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'd probably go Shaun of the Dead actually. You do. <laughs> it's
1: so
2: good. It's Shaun of the Dead. Because if you're on an island, you're gonna need some like humor and cheering up, right? <laughs> right, so, <come> right. <laughs>
0: there you go. Good justification.
2: Thank you.
0: All right, never let me go or Out of the Past. Great little uh, noir. Oh, I
1: haven't
2: seen that either. I'm
1: uh, I'm never let me go on this one, Andy. I am out of the past on this one.
2: Please. Oh,
1: all right. Well, are right, you ready? The great equalizer. Yes, that's right. One, one two, two, three. three scissors. Ah!
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So out of the past takes it there. Uh, Never Let Me Go or another speakeasy film.
1: The Silent Partner. This one, I, you would be forgiven if you hadn't seen this one. Alana.
2: Nope. Sorry, guys.
0: It's definitely worth watching,
1: though. It really is totally okay. worth watching. Okay. Uh, this was recommended by um, Craig Anderson. Oh, Craig Anderson our, uh, he's, uh, it was a great conversation. Um, Andy, I, I'm going to guess that you're a silent partner on this.
0: I actually never let me go. No
1: idea who <laughs> you are. I'm also never let me go. It's, uh, yeah, I, I really... I yeah.
0: Hate to, this film sticks with you. Totally. Never let me go or The Great Escape. We just talked about that pretty recently. Yeah. I'm going to say the Never Let Me Go. Did you see that one, Alana?
2: Nope. The what? Terrible, I know. I haven't seen anything. Apparently. Oh, your
1: list of, your list <laughs> of shame is growing.
2: Gosh. S- usually I'm never this person, but <laughs> you guys. go. No, you guys are my competition. Tough. <laughs>
1: that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, never Let Me Go versus The Great Escape. A Great Escape was a uh, terrific uh, uh, World War II film. Steve McQueen, what are you going to do? Uh uh, and you you picked Never Let Me Go. Yes. I, really? Yes.
0: Although I'm, we were I'm pretty soft.
1: high. We were pretty high on on Great Escape. I don't know if you remember. It was just days ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm pretty soft on it. though. It's like this is a pretty close one for me.
1: I'm going to try. I'm going to I'm going to push you on that. I'm picking Great Escape. OK, I'll give it to you.
2: <laughs> You're very soft.
1: <laughs> I told you I was off. All right. Where but, is that? Leave us? Is, I, us? is that it? At
0: least I feel like I've I've gotten my connection to- Principled Lost, yes. There we go. Yes, that that puts it at number 60 on our list. So this is pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Out of, out of uh, you know, nearly 250 films. So. Cool. You did a great
1: job here. This was a great pick. I call this a huge win for you and a great gift. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it, seen it, knew nothing about it. And it's so rare that I feel like I have that opportunity anymore to see a film completely blind. Um, It's just, it was a really great experience. We have one more ranking thing. That's at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Our partners over at letterbox. They're fantastic. Uh, Our film diaries over there uh, out of five stars. Alana, what is this for you?
2: um five four and a half
1: four and a half andy yeah. there's your hand andy's half star of love right there that what is, is this, it where are you i am at four stars with this one. four stars yes. yeah. crying out loud can't read you at all <laughs> uh i i'm uh i'm gonna give it the four and a half stars what do you yes. think about that That's uh-huh. fantastic i like it that much so it's fun. great. It's good stuff. All right,
0: I am so thrilled that we got to talk about this film with you, Alana. Just absolutely fantastic. Um, so now you're out there in the world. Um, if you if you want people to find you, like where should they go uh, track you down? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? Uh, what are you? Where are you in the world of social media?
2: Um, I'm I'm an emailer. I like I like an email. So my my website com, You can contact me there. Um,
1: and see some of your work.
2: Yes. Yeah. Tell us, a, tell us a little bit about
1: your work that you're doing right now. What are you most excited yeah. about?
2: Um, I worked on a film that's coming out called Equals, and it's coming out July 15th. Um, and it's, I'm super, super proud of it. And I hope you guys go see it.
0: Oh, yes. It looks great. It and looks you know, so good. considering the the level of sci-fi we've been talking about with this film it's like that feels really fitting for that to be kind of the next one of yours that's going to be out in theaters because it has that same vibe you know it's it's an emotional connection of these characters in this interesting sci-fi world that doesn't feel too sci-fi
2: totally a it's another love story set in a sci-fi world but just without the sci-fi elements have you
1: have you had an opportunity to see the film
2: Yes, you have
1: seen it. All oh yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah, I went to Venice and saw it last year. It premiered there, so that was incredible. Uh, yeah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so well,
1: it, it does. It looks delightful. We will post a uh, we'll post a link to your site, and we'll put the trailer in the post so people uh, jump to the in the show notes. So just scroll down, everybody, right now. <laughs> look at your phone. Scroll down and tap on the extras because uh, uh, it's great, and it seems like a really sweet message too. Yep. it's a better island yes <laughs> it's, we're going to do a whole series of people wearing white yep
2: <laughs> we should have all worn white today. we should have all worn I white too. Yes. I planned that
0: <laughs> alright yeah, uh, well thank you so much again for joining us in the next Real Speakeasy Alana
2: thank you for having me
0: and for those of you out there, we certainly hope you enjoy the show. If you like what you've heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Pinterest, Letterboxd, FlickChart, and now YouTube. And don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and comment. It really does help more people find us. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, I've got another organ to go donate. Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point.
1: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. The NextReel.com
0: slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner.
1: That's right. Head over to the slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today.
0: If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor.
1: With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly.
0: If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor
1: and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.